you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, um, I guess I'll give you a 20-second bio. bio, uh, bio. Um, my name is Brian Rutland. I'm the youth pastor at Southside Bible Church, which is right down Arapahoe. And um, we uh, started that church in 1998, and I am becoming a really old youth pastor as uh, the kids keep coming in younger and I keep getting older. And, um, but I do really appreciate Mitch, the ministry here. We had coffee um, maybe a year ago, I don't know, and just really uh, enjoyed the fellowship with him. His heart, I know you, you see his heart every week, um, for the word, for you guys, for the the growth of the kingdom for the glory of Christ. And so um, I was excited to uh, step in and, and just give uh, Mitch and his family a little respite. Thank you for your hospitality to my wife and I. This is my wife, Heather, right here. Uh, we have six kids, three boys, three girls. And uh, we are in the end of high school and lots of college age. So uh, I, I thought parenting would taper off. It doesn't. It just gets more intense. And so um, it's been good. Our text this morning is Psalm 119, 153, verses 153 to 160. And let me read our text, and I apologize, I should have called and asked what is the predominant translation. I'll be teaching from uh, the NAS translation and referencing ESV, so hopefully you can translate the words as if it's not exactly your translation. Psalm 119, verse 153. <clears throat> Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I, do, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them, because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for Luma Bible Church and for the work that you're doing here. Thank you for... Just the family of God, those that you have redeemed by the blood of your Son. And it's a privilege to be together this morning, to worship together, and to open up your word, and to cry out for your spirit to work in our hearts, to cause us to look up and consider once again your greatness, the beauty of Christ, and the wonder of the gospel that you would come to sinners like us, worthy of an eternal hell, and you would redeem us by the blood of your Son. God, we rejoice to know you through Christ, to live our lives now in Christ, with your glory as our chief end. God, I pray that you would bless our time this morning as we think about this new year, all that's going on around us and also in us. Pray that you would bring a deeper sense of your love for us and that our response would be a deeper love for you. God, we cry out, just like the psalmist, that you would 
revive our souls, that you would cause us to grow up in Christ, to mature into our head, that you would be glorified in this church, in our individual hearts, and that your name would go forth in this world so that others would know you. God, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for preserving your word that we just read, that we have in our possession, that we can open at any time and hear you speak. God, thank you for your faithfulness to your children. We pray now that you would bless our time, that we might see Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Our text this morning is one stanza out of the longest chapter in the Bible. Right? Psalm 119. Just a little specs on Psalm 119. 176 verses. 22 stanzas, with each stanza being eight verses that are uh, according to the Hebrew alphabet. So each stanza begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's poetically organized so that every line begins with that letter. Now, we're not reading in the Hebrew, but just so that we understand, this is a song. It's a psalm. It's, it was sung as worship. And as I've studied it, I've committed to stay in it with our, with our youth group. And uh, 22 chapters, 22 stanzas, 22 messages, it's, it's taken us the better part of a year uh, to study through Psalm 119. We're coming to the end of it. And I found it to be incredibly focused on the Word of God, right? It's, I think there's eight different terms in the, in the, in the, in the chapter, Psalm 119, that, that refer to the Word of God, His ordinances, His precepts, His laws. Um, his, uh, there's eight of them. I can't remember all of them. And all of them are these worshipful, almost proverb-like statements. Each statement just reads with some some idea and some tie-in to the Word of God. And so it's this glorious worship all around the Word. And like all the Psalms, they draw us in. The Psalms are so experiential, they're so, they're so raw and transparent. I think, I think if we were to survey, most Christians gravitate towards the Psalms. They gravitate towards the book of John. Because likewise, it's it's, it's very personal, and the person of Christ is revealed, and the I am statements, and the miracles. doesn't mean that all the Bible isn't true in the Word of God, but we, we, we sometimes are drawn into the emotion of the Psalms. And so in this psalm, it, it, this stanza, there's a transparent sort of raw crying out for two things, predominantly. And I have to confess, I find these stanzas very difficult to outline. Because you don't really exposit a song off the radio. And that's what I'm called to do and we're called to do is read it and draw out the truth of it. And so I apologize in advance. My outline is not linear. This does not unfold like a legal argument of Paul. It's a song and it's sung. And so there's two things that the psalmist is crying out for. And they, we'll look at it in different parts of this stanza, the first is, is he's crying out for rescue. He needs God's help. There's difficulty going on that the psalmist is asking God for help, external things. And the second prayer we'll look at is he's crying out for revival on the inside. Pretty much sums up our existence. There's hard things out there, 
and there's hard things in here. It's a great reminder that God is available. God is involved in these things in our lives. The difficulties that we face externally and the desire, and we'll explore it, the desire to be revived in our spiritual life on the inside. So we'll look at two prayers that the psalmist is crying out for. And we'll look at two key truths. And those two, two key truths have implications that this stanza addresses. The first key truth is that the wicked will not be saved. There are consequences to the rebellion of the wicked. And in this stanza of this song, the author explores those implications for himself as the wicked reject the, the word of God. And the second truth that we'll look at as this stanza closes is this the reality that the word of God is true, all of it is true, and all of it is true forever. And it's a great conclusion to this, this little verse in this larger psalm that is worshiping God for the beauty of his communication to us in his word. The context of this psalm is that the writer is writing under the old covenant system. He's under the law covenant, the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant had not come yet. And so as much as all things were anticipating the coming of Christ, we have to know where we are in redemptive history. He lived under the, an elaborate sacrificial system. He lived under the Mosaic Covenant, which was not a saving covenant. It was a covenant to expose our sin, not to remedy it. And yet God was revealing himself through this old covenant by defining how he was to be approached through this blood sacrifice. I sat on a panel years ago with uh, youth pastors in the South Denver area. And we were at a, uh, a large uh, ministry gathering. I think it was Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And it was a panel discussion for high school students to ask questions. And uh, so I'm sitting on stage with I don't know, five or six other youth pastors who sadly are not often known for their theological depth. I, I, I carry that burden. And the question was asked, which I think is a common question, by a, a young lady, and she raised her hand and said, how were the people in the Old Testament saved? And so we all kind of looked at each other, you know, who's going to field the question? It's a good question. And, the, and the, the gentleman next to me said, and I quote, well, I guess the animal sacrifices worked for them. And I thought, oh no, not only is that a really bad answer, but I can't just let that sit. Right? I've got to address that. So now there's questions out there. There's bigger questions sitting right next to me. The old covenant sacrifices never remedied sin. They never brought salvation. And to even insinuate that that system, that sacrificial system, could atone for sin does great tragedy and travesty to the cross. And so I just thumbed through my Bible and I read this passage from Hebrews 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
with respect to my brother who hadn't read his Old Testament quite yet, and maybe the book of Hebrews. Because it had to be clear to these teenagers, you don't get saved by keeping the law. And yet, if we take Hebrews 4 and we combine that with Romans 4, the faith of Abraham, which preceded the Old Covenant, it preceded the law, was a saving faith. And so all through the Old Testament, you have people of faith looking forward to the coming of Christ, saved by the sacrifice that would come, not by keeping the law. And yet the law was the expression of their faith. It was their communication of God to them, and they could love God and serve God through the law. That's the situation that the psalmist is writing under. Romans 4.16, for this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. There was something organic about Abraham's faith. He saw nothing. God promised him things, and he just trusted. He just believed that God was and that God would fulfill his promises to him. And Genesis says that he was justified in that faith. And so we must distinguish the time in redemptive history when the psalmist was writing and our time. They're different, but they're connected, but they're different. He's writing under the law. And so our, our outline, as I mentioned, two key prayers, rescue me and revive me, and two key truths, the wicked will not be delivered and the word of God is true. So let's take up this first prayer. And I'll, I'll draw it from the whole stanza. It's in different places. But the first prayer is the psalmist crying out to God, God, would you rescue me because I'm one of those who keeps your word. I don't forget your word. Look in verse 153. Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Look in 154. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Look upon my affliction and rescue me because I don't forget your law. It's, it's not so much a transactional thing. Like, I'm doing this for you, you do that for me. It's more of an identity statement. I'm one of those that love your law, that remember your law. I'm one of the faithful. I'm following after you. Would you deliver me in these situations that I'm facing? Psalm 119 is a testimony to the external difficulties of this life, meaning life is hard. It's hard for all of us. And if you take up the cross of Christ, you're adding to that difficulty because Jesus promised it won't go well for you in this life if you claim the name of Christ. John 15, if they hated me, they will hate you as well. There's difficulties in this life. There are many persecutors and persecutions of the righteous, and they will not cease in this life because the world is broken, because the world is sinful, and because the, the root of sin is godlessness, and those who love God and walk with Christ bear the persecution of those that hate God and don't want to walk with Him. How many times has the psalmist cried out to God for help in this chapter? I haven't done the, done the work, but it's a great exercise. He's always crying out for deliverance in Psalm 119. 
And I want to give us just five briefly, five facets of his prayer for rescue. First of all, it's personal. He's, he's praying, you, God, deliver me. Me personally. Me and my affliction. Secondly, it's, it's real. It's real. It's real pain, real affliction, real persecution, praying to a real God, asking for real hope. And thirdly, I think it's desperate. The psalmist, there's an urgency to what he's crying out for. Look upon my affliction and rescue me. Like, like now, help me. Thirdly, it's, it's desperate. Because it's real and because there's real pain in this life, it's coming against the psalmist. He's not praying some passive prayer. He's very aggressively, desperately asking God for help. Fourthly, I find it to be very humble because prayer in itself is humility. If you figure things out yourself, you don't pray. If you come to the end of yourself and say, I don't have the resources, the power, the wisdom, the ability, then we look to the one who does. And we pray to the God of the universe. Only God can rescue him. He says, would you plead my cause? In the Hebrew, it's the idea of taking up legally, taking up my, my, my side and, and defending me against those coming after me. Take up my case. And then fifthly, it's very, it's very hopeful. Only God can rescue him, but only God can rescue him. Because God's powerful and willing and compassionate toward his people. And so as we think about the new year and we think about this psalm and this stanza, my question for us this morning is, do you ever cry out to God with this kind of fervency in prayer? Do you cry out to the one who your resources are limited and tainted by sin? But as you face the external difficulties of this life, do you cry out to him? passionately, persistently, hopefully, humbly, crying out to the God of the universe. It's one of the great privileges of being a Christian. The door is wide open for us to cry out to our God. Abba, Father. A person who does not cry out to God does not need God. They believe in themselves, their own power, their own resources. A person who does not cry out to God does not have a great faith in God. That he can deliver them from sin, from danger, from trials. And so, therefore, a person who does not cry out to God oftentimes does not know God at all. Because our life and our circumstances demand God, His intervention. To know God is to need God, and thus the cross. You and I need to cry out to God. And therefore, we need a relationship that allows us to cry out to God. Another great question in, in, that I get from, from young people, from teenagers, kind of a panel question, is does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? It's a good question. And I think emphatically, the Bible tells us, of course, he hears them in terms of he knows everything, hears everything, has all knowledge. But he does not, he's not tuned into them. He doesn't, he doesn't answer the prayers of the rebellious, those who are not his children. And then the example for me is as my wife were raising our children, we'd be at the park 
And you would hear crying and screaming, but you would hear the crying and screaming of your kids predominantly, right? That was the one that you were tuned into. Uh, you, you'd hear bloody murder screams and cries and stuff like that. But when you heard your child crying, you made a beeline. You, you, were, you were attentive. You answered those, those prayers, those cries for help. And the same with, with God. His ear is tuned to his children. He answers the prayer of his children. Now, there is one prayer that the unbeliever prays that God always hears. And it's the prayer of coming to Christ of receiving the gospel, of crying out to God to forgive me for my sin as I put my faith in Christ. But, but God is, is not universally just answering pagans crying out for help. But he is listening to us as his children. And that is great privilege and that is great access. And so we need a relationship with God before we cry out to our God. A biblical perspective on God and myself and my trials demands crying out. Jesus is the answer to all of our crying out because he's God. Because he's delivered us from the greatest evil, our own sin, and he promises to take care of us for the rest of the journey. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so as we consider this aspect of the prayer and this aspect of the stanza in the chapter 119, be reminded this morning that God does care about your external circumstances. He cares about the things that you're going on that are going on in your life that are difficult. And there's plenty of them. This life is full of difficulties. Those difficulties aren't ultimate, but they're real for us. And God cares about them. And he answers these prayers. Now I think lest we think of God as a genie that we're just rubbing bottles and getting him to fix our circumstances. He doesn't always fix our circumstances, right, for greater purpose. In his wisdom, sometimes we cry for help, and his help is different. It's not fixing the situation. Maybe it's fixing our heart to trust him through difficulty, to, to weather a storm that is very, very hard. And I, I think my wife and I, our, our confession is that, and you would, you, I'm sure you would agree, the times that God doesn't fix the circumstances are some of the sweetest times because you have to dig deep and just trust him and just walk through whatever it is, the adversity, the, the wayward child, the, 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 the boss at work that's not going away that's just difficult. And you're thinking, could you just switch him out for me? Could you just replace him? But, he, but God doesn't for a greater purpose to cause you to trust him in difficulty and maybe learn to love someone that's difficult. Maybe not to just get our way and think, well, I just want everything fixed. Those are beautiful times. Our God is not all about fixing the here and now. Sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. The reality is that salvation is our greatest need. A saving relationship with Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, is our greatest need. But the Bible is full of examples of God caring for his people. I'll, uh, I'll just give you two examples, big examples. Turn to Exodus 3 in your Bibles. One great example of the Old Testament of God caring for his people is the Exodus, just, which has huge implications in redemptive history. But the compassion of God, the mercy of God for his people is very evident. That he heard their cries and they were suffering and he delivered them out of the slavery in Egypt. 
Exodus 3, 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now, the Exodus, as I said, has massive implications in redemptive history and God's plan in bringing about the coming of Christ. But that doesn't negate that he cared deeply for his people in their suffering, and he still does. He cares for us in whatever you're going through, and he is accessible to us through Christ. The door is wide open for us to cry out, God, rescue me. One example from the New Testament that came to mind was in Acts chapter 12. If you want to turn to Acts 12, 5. When Herod ramped up his persecution of the church in Acts 12, and he, he killed James, the brother of John, and he put Peter in prison, the church cries out on Peter's behalf. Acts 12, 5. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently. They were crying out for the well-being of their brother, Peter, was being made fervently by the church to God. And then, uh, you know the story, then an angel supernaturally delivers him from the prison. Now, he could have stayed there for all of his life. Right? Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress in prison. God does great things in Christian confinement. Bonhoeffer. World War II. But the idea is life is full of external problems and difficulties and trials, but it's also filled with, and these maybe are the harder ones, the internal trials of our life, the, the, the deep issues in our soul that are difficult, uh, wrestling with our own sanctification, with our own sin, with relationship struggles. And so the second prayer of the psalmist is a prayer for revival on the inside. The second prayer is this, revive me according to your word. That's kind of the summary of it. Look in verse 154 of Psalm 119. It says, plead my cause and redeem me, revive me according to your word. And then in 156, great are your mercies, O Lord, revive me according to your ordinances. And then 159, consider how I love your precepts, precepts. revive me, O Lord according to your loving kindness. He's prayed for help on the outside, and now he's going to pray for help on the inside. The Hebrew word for revive, it can mean life, like physical life. It also can mean a return to life, a, a revitalization of life, like, like life from a sickness. And certainly the psalmist is writing this, so he's not dead. So we're not, the, the, the word for revive here contextually is not being used to like bring me back to life. But there's a quality of life that he's asking for. God, would you, I, I'm praying for the difficulties out here, the external things, but there's something going on inside me that I'm asking you to revive. And in our context, it seems to be, the word seems to be used for, for this, the inner life of the soul. That we desire, I think, as image bearers, 
I have physical life, but God, would you do something inside me to cause me to really live again? I love being a youth pastor because young people, whether they know it or not, are asking those questions. Who am I? What is all this about? And what is life? What, what, what is really life in this life? I have a pulse, but there's something, there's an angst to growing up. You couldn't pay me a million dollars to go back to middle school or high school. Difficult. Talk about crying out with external problems. They abound. But the question that they're asking, we're still asking. What is life? What is it that we're supposed to be doing? I'm, I'm, I'm going through motions. I'm eating and breathing and things like that. But there's something that I'm longing for that only is answered in Christ that brings real life. What a great prayer. We're longing for more than just physical life. We're longing for real, true, fulfilling life, eternal life, both the quantity and the quality. The Scottish theologian Henry Scougal in the 1600s wrote a famous little book called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Because God is the one who possesses real life. And he made us in his image to have that life. And then we, we messed it all up. So you come into this life and you're alive, but you're not alive. And that spiritual death is torment. And teenagers taste it and feel it. And then we get older and maybe we, we kind of just find lanes to run in. But don't be satisfied in this life with anything short than the life of God. That's what we were made for. That's what the gospel frees us to embrace and to possess. Real life on the inside. The life of God and the soul of man. I recommend you. It's a great little book. But the title, it says it all, too. Sometimes the, the titles can present the book in the title right there. So if you don't read it, you've kind of read it. God is the one who is really alive. He has life in himself. He derives life from nowhere else and no one else. And he is eternally, infinitely satisfied in himself. And in the gospel, you and I are set free to gain that life. Christ himself, who is the life, comes and dwells in us. He defines life for us. And now we would, we would agree with Paul in Colossians. Christ is life. He's the sum total of what life is to be. To know him, to walk with him, to obey him, to love him, to be conformed to his image. That is life. Anything else, you're being sold short. Life is not in a vehicle. I've watched all my kids, you know, in the recent years get their dream car or something like that. I'm like, Dad, I was waiting for this. And I got it. Well, it's not life. It might get you from A to B, but it will decline. Life is a relationship. It can't be. It can't be. There's not a person on this planet that, will, that can supernaturally bring to you life on the inside. But people will scrape and claw to find it in a person, in a relationship. And we could fill in the blanks with everything that the world is scratching and clawing for that is not life. Why else would the psalmist be praying to God for revival, for revived life, if he first did not believe that he lurked, lacked a certain quality of life and that God was the only one who had it? 
You go to the source for life. God, would you revive me? What a great prayer. And, and I, I'm sure all of us are carrying burdens, are wrestling through issues on the outside and the inside. But what a great New Year's prayer. God, would you revive my heart in 2024? Would you cause me to taste more and more of the life of Christ? And what's so beautiful in the text is that God has wed his glory to our joy. And so when you chase things that are not life, so goes your joy, right? When you wreck that nice car that you thought was everything, there goes your joy. And the insurance company won't do a good job in giving you back that life, right? What you thought was life. But as you live, as we live for Christ, and we, we con- we're consumed with him, and we're in his word, and we're in fellowship as a church, the glory of God is preeminent, and so goes our joy. Our joy increases as we walk with Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And he's not talking to dead people. He's talking to people that needed the life of God in the soul of man. That's the beauty of what the gospel accomplishes. And what the psalmist ties this to is in his prayer for revival, he ties it to the word of God. Verse verse 154, revive me according to your word. That's so instructive to me. That, that, is, that eliminates sources, all of them except for the Bible. Revive me, not according to culture, not according to the media, not according to technology. Don't revive me according to other people. Revive me according to your word as the word unfolds Christ to us. It's a huge mistake of humanity and sometimes believers to try to find revival on the inside by looking further inside. I'm broken, but I'm also the source of my own deliverance and salvation. That sounds irrational. If I'm the broken one, why am I looking deeper into myself to find life? And that is the Disney message, right? That is the cultural message. The answers to your inner problems are further deeper inside of you. What a lie from Satan. Looking within yourself is looking deeper inside the brokenness. That's not the solution. That's more of the problem. Revival, real life, is found by looking away from ourselves to the God who's revealed himself in the word. Revive me according to your ordinances. He communicates himself to us in the scriptures. Look at verse 159. He asked God to consider, to consider that he loves his precepts, his word, and revive me according to your loving kindness. And I think this is a hard question. Would you be comfortable praying a prayer like that, appealing to God that you love his word, would you revive me? It, 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 it's, it could call us out a little bit. How do I, if if life is found in the word, how much do I live in the word? How much am I, by faith, believing that the source for, for life, real life, is found in the scriptures as it points me to the Son of God, 
as it reveals Christ to me. So just a couple of, of quick bullets points on how do I know if I love the Word of God? I'll give you six ways, really quick, and there's certainly more. One is that you have a Bible, and you keep it with you. And I, I, when, when, the, when the kids come in all the time in the youth group, I'm like, where's your Bible? Where's your Bible? Like, I've got a stack over there, but you need your Bible, right? You need yours that's marked up, that's underlined, that you've, you've lived in it in blood, sweat, and tears. And I just, I love, I'm sure you've worn out some Bibles in your time. And there's, a, I have this sh- a shelf, I've got old Bibles on it. That for those seasons of life, you know, they just, they wore out in the binding and whatever. Those, those books on the shelf, they mean something deep to a Christian. If you've walked with God for decades, like, I remember that Bible. That was the one when that happened. And I remember sitting, reading it, and reading it, and reading it, and living in it. So have a Bible and keep it with you. That's more important than your phone, which is the greatest fear right now. Uh, I think worse than death. Worse than public speaking is losing your phone. What a commentary on our culture. Second, read it often, regularly, and systematically. To love the Word of God as the source for revival in my heart is to be in the Word. I I, want to see young people and all people have Bibles, but have some Bibles that are roughed up. Have a Bible that's been kicked around because it gets used so much. If you have a, now when you buy a new Bible, it's going to be crisp, right? But, but it shouldn't stay crisp. You, you should use it and read it. And, and, and it's, it's got margin notes and you're just writing and underlining and wrestling with the Word of God because you love the Word of God. Third, treasure it for what it is. It's the very Word of God. It would be amazing if tonight, as you slept, you were awakened by an angel and light shone in your bedroom and God spoke to you through that messenger. It happens every morning when you open your Bible. Just crack the spine of that thing and God is speaking. Psalm 119.72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Wear out your Bible, reading it, loving it, treasuring it. Fourthly, we know we love the Bible when we love Jesus Christ, the one to whom it points. The Word of God is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. To know the Word is to know the living Word. John 5.39, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You're thinking life is found right here in this text. It is these that testify about me. And you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So if I'm crying out for revival in my soul, and that life is found in Christ, and that Christ is found in the text, I need to be all about the text. I need to be a daily disciplined reading and studying and memorizing and talking about the Word of God. Fifthly, we love the Word of God when we strive to obey it in detail, from the heart, out of love for Christ. It's not good enough to know it. It needs to flow through us in obedience and and understanding and changing our thinking and having conviction. And then sixthly, we are continually, we love the Word when we're continually revived by the Word of God, that we go to it and it revives us. I, I can think of all all kinds of experiences where I, I try to put off reading the Bible. 
But I can never think of an experience where I sat down and opened it up and there wasn't some sense of revival there, where the, where the Word of God said something that, and, and God spoke and I, I took a thought, like, oh, that's exactly what I need, or that's, that's such a truth about life and who I am and who Christ is, and it's just a gospel refresher. There's an important statement in verse 156. This is maybe the key to this whole stanza. And this prayer for the revival of the soul, that is the assurance of God's answer, the assurance that, our God's, that, that God will answer this prayer is this, in 156, great are your mercies, O Lord, revive me according to your ordinances. The psalmist is crying out for rescue and revival, and at the same time, he's testifying to the very nature of his God, that his God is merciful. So it's a great little combination of, if I'm asking something, and the nature of God guarantees it, he's a merciful God. He will revive your soul as we ask him in faith, whatever that looks like, joy return, perseverance, repentance. Who would answer these prayers for help on the inside? A God of great mercy. Listen to Lamentations 3.22. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions, his mercies, never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. It's a great statement of God's mercy in the book of Jonah that every time I read it makes me chuckle because Jonah is really upset that God is a merciful God. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. He's been, Jonah's been sent to the Ninevites. He, he doesn't go. He flees, ends up in the belly of a fish, and then he goes and he preaches and they repent. And this is Jonah's lament. And I, I, it's, it's, there's irony all over it. Jonah 4, 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah, Jonah hated these people so much that when God had mercy on them, he said, Oh, I knew it. I knew it. If I went and preached to them, you'd be merciful to them. Now I just want to die. There's something he needs to work out inside with the God of, of Abraham, who's a merciful God. Can I just ask what time we started? What time, anybody remember what time we started? I want to be, is it, well, I, 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 I got to gauge my time was, did we start at 1030? So, okay, 1030. I checked online how long Mitch preaches, and I don't want to do anything but. 10.20? Okay. All right. We'll land the plane. And we know more than Jonah knew. We know that God is a merciful God because he sent Christ, and Christ ascended the cross, and he laid down his life for us. If God gave Christ, then he will give revival in your soul. If God gave all in Christ Jesus for our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins to bring us into the family, think of it in fatherly terms. Will he not also with him freely give us all things? Romans 8. 
the external, the internal, our God is sufficient. Our word points us to this Christ who is life. When we consider the cross, there is no question that our God is merciful, that he's compassionate, and he is willing to respond to the needs of our soul. Infinitely more than when you hear the cries of your children, we respond. We don't just turn a deaf ear like, what, you need help? You need, there's problems going on? I love it when my kids come and say, Dad, I just don't know what to do with this. I'm like, oh, yeah, come on in my office, sit down, like, put it all on the table, let's talk. Titus 3, 4, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's a shame to journey this life and not cry out to the God who is merciful and answers these prayers. And sometimes we can come to Christ for salvation and then try to live the Christian life on our own. What a mistake. God is ready, willing, available, near. His Spirit dwells in us for us to cry out to Him. And then briefly, finally, these two key truths. Our third point is the first key truth. It's the state of the wicked. It's the state of the wicked. They, they won't be delivered. Look at verse 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Verse 157, many are, the, are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. And then 158, I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. The psalmist is interacting with the idea of the wicked. Why they are wicked? They're wicked because they don't follow the revelation of God in the scriptures. They don't follow your word. And then he's, he's wrestling with the implications of what the wicked can do to us. And how he feels about them, their wickedness. So first, it's just a sad reality. There are many in this world who refuse to follow God, who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a broad path that leads to destruction. And there are effects or potential effects on us as believers and how we think about the wicked. And I would suggest... Before we get into the text, because it's going to unfold these realities, that wickedness in our culture has crept into our understanding of Christianity, and it's always pressing us to sort of abide with their wickedness. The reality of the wicked, Psalm 155, uh, 119, 155 says, is that they will not be delivered. Salvation is far from them because they don't seek your statutes, your word. They don't have faith in this God. Which means a person's pursuit of God's word is often a key evidence of whether or not you're a Christian or not. To profess to love Christ, to have him as all in your life, and to care nothing about what he says is an is a inconsistent reality. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, those that know God are defined by their love for God's word. It'd be strange for me to say to my wife, I love you so much, don't talk to me. But I love her words because her words express her heart. And, and, and that's the relationship there. If I have a relationship with the God of the universe through, the, through Jesus Christ, I want to hear his word. I want to hear him talk to me in, in, in the scriptures. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so this is an important question for you and I as believers, and for maybe some of you that aren't believers. Do you believe that the wicked won't be delivered? It's a key fundamental presupposition as we come to the gospel. It's an important question as the world presses us to be religiously inclusive. All ways, all people, all lead to some nirvana heaven, and we're to embrace all ways. We're not to embrace all ways. The wicked will end in destruction unless they trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And the Bible is clear. There is no other way. There is no other name by which you must be saved. Do you believe that sin really leads to death? Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And then Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. Our culture is demanding that we not believe that. And the psalmist is drawing this line and saying, the wicked will not be helped by God. Now that's, that's not mean, that's truth from the text. Verse 157 says that not only are the wicked not saved, but they also can make our lives really difficult. Persecutions, afflictions. They can mock our faith, threaten our safety, generally wreak havoc in our lives. And the Bible affirms that that suffering is the cost of faithfulness. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But look in verse 157. There's great resolve in the psalmist's heart. 157, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. They won't cause me to turn away from your word. There's the wicked. They don't like my God. They hate my Christ. They want inclusivity. They want tolerance. And yet this is the gospel. And and the psalmist is saying, I won't turn away from your word. Now, as I thought about this, I thought, don't we wrestle with what's the value of saying that words are cheap, right? Peter said, I won't deny you. And he did. Here's the value of this kind of conviction. It may be just words. But it also may be the worship of testifying to conviction in the heart. And I think this, by example, is something that we we should do. Uh, We should be free to say to our kids, to each other, the world is crashing in, but I'm not going to bend. By God's grace, I'm going to walk according to his word. I'm not going to turn away from his word, regardless of what happens in this world. That is worship. That is an expression of conviction. And here's what I think is the reality. Um, Conviction in terms of actions must come from a heart that is first convicted. And saying those things and and acknowledging those things to God, it's almost like a a testimony and a prayer at the same time, right? Because it's it's a humble statement. God, there's there's the wicked out there, but I'm not going to turn away from from your word, but by your grace, and would you help me with that? Like, aren't we asking, like, God, as the world crushes in, would you sustain us? Would you keep us through this difficulty? And then he says this difficult statement in 158. He says, I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. I don't think that was in a want verse for many kids growing up. ESV says, I look at the faithless with disgust 
because they do not keep your commands. There is a proper response in the righteous to the unrighteous, and it's a dual response because we should be able to say, I'm disgusted by the sin of this world. I'm disgusted by abortion, human trafficking, child abuse, lying, deceit, all that is evil before a holy God. We should be able to say, I loathe that. I'm disgusted with those who perpetrate that. And at the same time, feel great compassion and mercy and love for those who are enslaved to their sin and desperately need to be saved. There's, there's a, it's not, they're not antithetical thoughts. But, but here's the question for our hearts. Do you hate what God hates? And every movie, every song, every, every newscast is pressing us to love what God hates. To creep, to let the creep, uh, for, for the, the ideology of the world, the system of this world, opposed to God, to creep into our existence and for us to say, you know what, let's just give up as a church and let's embrace homosexuality and transgenderism. We are to hate what God hates because God is holy and God is real. And so sin can't become something less than sin. And, and, and as we come to Christ to revive our life, he's also reviving our minds so that we think biblically and we don't bend to culture. Humanity is not the definer of truth. And that's why it all starts in a creative event. If God authors all creation, then he has the authority to define that creation and instruct that creation and hold that creation accountable. You and I don't have, in our capacity, by design or by, by ability, the notion that we define what is real in this life. We need God to speak that into our lives. We need revelation. There is a humble way to be utterly disgusted by the wickedness of the world. It is the proper response to sin. Listen to Jude 20. I feel this tension of like caring for people and hating sin at the same time. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Do you hate what God hates? I have this little slip of paper next to my bed. I don't know why it's there. I just, it came out of a memory verse or something. But I left it there because it's such a good reminder. It's on my nightstand. It's Proverbs 8.13. It says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. And when all the famous actors and famous athletes and, 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 and politicians, when they begin to preach sin as righteousness, the culture seems to move with it. And you or I to draw lines like the, like the psalmist. I hate what God hates. But I love that God is faithful and cares about these people and wants to see them saved. And then fourthly and finally, verse 160, this is our second key truth, final key truth. It's just that God's word is true. It's this great little summary statement at the end, Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. And before we even address the text, I just want you to think about what it means to be made in the image of God. 
You and I were made according to the truth of the one who is true. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not something that's out there floating around. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus Christ. Truth is the God of the universe. And so you and I were designed for truth. We were designed truthfully to live in truth, to walk in truth, to know truth, and to reject error. So here's the beauty of what he's saying about the word of God. All of God's word is true. The sum total of it, you all add it all up. At the equation, it comes out, it's true. And all of it is true forever. You and I need that desperately. The world needs that desperately. Because as as truth is sort of a moving thing, so goes your peace. Peace is tied to truth. You'll never know peace until you know the truth of Christ. What a summary of this entire chapter, this entire stanza. I find that all of this is summed up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cry for external deliverance is ultimately answered in Christ. The cry for inner revival is ultimately answered in Christ. The wicked and and, and the resolve to stay faithful to the word word of God in light of the difficulties of this world and to know the truth of God in his word, are they culminate in the gospel. And jump fast forward to the time of eternity when we'll be with Christ face to face in heaven. We won't be crying out for deliverance because we won't need any. And we won't be crying out for revival in our souls because our souls will be maximized in perfection, like Christ, walking with him, experiencing the glory of God in the eternal state forever. And yet this statement will ring true for all eternity. The sum of your word is truth. It will be true forever. We'll forever worship the Lamb. Let's pray.